0: Once the king, seven and eight, but we never really, it really took us two weeks to get through the last message. So now we're caught up, so that worked out pretty well. Um, but let's uh, stand and read the first, uh, 60, well let's read chapter seven of 1 Samuel, it's a short chapter. Then of course remember that the, it, the ark had been captured and then, uh, all that took place to get it back, the Lord brought it back to Israel, and then all the things that were going on with the Philistines. And the men of Kirith-Jerim came and took up the Ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And They consecrated his son, Eleazar, to have charge of the Ark of the Lord. Basically, he was the high priest. From the, from the day that the Ark was lodged at Kirith-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisk among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the asherahs, that's basically the male and the female uh, gods, and they serve the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah. I will pray to the Lord for you. from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shem and called its name Ebenezer for he said till now the Lord has helped us. In other words the Lord has helped us up to this point. So the uh, Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all its places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. Let me see. Hmm. All right. So last week, this, this is by way of summary, we saw that God will not be used to back up our agenda. We'll see us differences between what's going on in the victory they had here, and what happened last week, uh, time, and the defeat, the difference there. Uh, The Lord sets the agenda. They uh, had decided, well, we need to be delivered from the Philistines, so they took the ark and they kind of used it as a a good luck charm, and it all fell apart because they had an agenda, but they were not seeking God's will. Prayer is to bring us into submission unto Him and for His help to do His will. Meditation on the Word can be prayer and communication as well. And and, and this is the same review as last week, but. these are things that we covered last week as well. We see the depths of spiritual and, and that uh departments I, I meant to have brick change as you know, I should be at excuse me for that. We see the depths of spiritual death. When the Philistines set up their God, remember Dagon? They put the ark right by Dagon, and he falls down in the morning they find him falling down, and they just set him back up to continue to worship. Clearly he's not the, the God, Yahweh was, twice he falls over, breaks apart, but they don't care because they're going to do what they want to do and worship whom they will. So it shows what spiritual death does, what sin does to our hearts. And so as we come to chapter 7, uh, we, and we finish the account that we began last week, which was Israel's great sin in trying to use the Lord and their disinterest in what the Lord wants and His glory. They just were all concerned about being delivered from Philistines. Anyway, and the Lord was there to help them. And the Lord said, no, it's not going to happen that way. And they suffered defeat because of their attitude and the way they went about it. But here, as we read, you see that there's there's been repentance. For 20 years, they have had time to realize their sin. And there, there seems to be some sort of national repentance. But it takes 20 years. Uh, but they, they, realize that things aren't what they should be. The ark isn't where the tabernacle was, and, and things aren't right, and, and, they, they seem to have a change of heart concerning the way they had been living. And, and this, chapter 7 is going to set up chapter 8, because in chapter 8, they're going to ask for a king. And I think, ch- say, why is, why do we read about chapter, what's going on here in chapter 7? Well, the interesting thing is, as we'll see, Everything is going absolutely wonderful. I mean chapter seven is one of the highlights of Israel's history. There, there's peace with uh, the Philistines and the Amorites, two of their greatest enemies. There, there's no more trouble with them. They've been subdued, their cities have been restored. Uh, you know they've got a, a, a high priest doing his thing. Everything is good because they trust in the Lord and, and obeying him. But even first, as, as Samuel says, Trust the Lord with all your heart. Put him first. Honor him as you should in your heart. Put away any false gods. And as we've said before, under the old covenant, you have paradise on earth. You just honor the Lord. And the very next chapter, when they get to this point, we need a king. The Lord isn't enough. And so I think what we're seeing here in chapter 7 is the ridiculous request of them wanting a king when the Lord, who is a true king, is taking care of them as well. He's delivering them from their enemies. Why does he need the king to deliver them from their enemies? So I think that's what we're seeing here in chapter 7 in particular. And, and, and Samuel's message here in verse 3, to put away the foreign gods and return to the Lord with all your heart, that, isn't that the same message that the Bible in in a, in a sense, does that not summarize the Bible? Does that not summarize God's will for His people and for really mankind throughout all, from the very beginning? That that was I think that was basically all Adam and Eve, or, yeah, Adam and Eve were supposed to do, just honor the Lord with all your heart. That, isn't that the first commandment? Just you know, put God first, and and, and they immediately fell. And so it's, uh, I think the Bible is very consistent that, uh, when we worship God as we should, put Him first, that we'll be delivered from our enemies. And, and that doesn't mean that God's gonna kill our enemies or rid our, rid whatever our problems are, get rid of them. But we will have victory over our enemies. You see, you might have enemies that are humans. You might have enemies, uh, that might be physical finances or health, relational problems, they're all enemies in that they can cause you to fall into sin but the Lord says, look, if you honor me with all your heart, you will have victory. Paul says that in chapter 8 of Romans. We are more than conquerors. We don't go out and conquer enemies. We conquer the sin. We, we can rule over sin. That's what salvation does. So, it's just, uh, to me, just one more example here of the consistency of the biblical message. It's the essence of godliness. And Samuel says that when you do that, there will be tangible results. And so there's no such thing as a purely inward religion. And can we take, we make great efforts, as I do, to that true religion begins in the heart, right? I mean, more or less, that's what he said. Honor me in your heart. But, the, the point I'm making here is that the, the true religion is not only inward, because once your heart is right with God, it's going to affect everything else in your life, right? So it'll be seen by others. And so, uh, think about Romans chapter, uh, 12, verse 1 and 2. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present, not your hearts, I mean that's a given, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to worship. You worship God all at all times, not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It begins inside. That by testing, you may discern. And again, the testing, so the, the, the enemies, the difficulty, the trials of life, are given to us so that we might learn the will of God, to learn what is good, what is acceptable to Him, and what is evil. And, and I think Romans six. If you go and read that chapter, you'll see. Probably Paul saying the exact same thing in a little bit different way. But our bodies are a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. You cannot have a transformed mind without a transformed life. And, and, and any someone who calls themselves a Christian and thinks that they can continue to live as they did before, I, the Bible I think says says very clearly, are fooling themselves. And so it's interesting. Excuse me. off My glasses. But it's interesting that the fact that God's people have gathered together to get right with God and serve Him does not go unnoticed by the world, by the Philistines, right? As soon as they gather together at Mizpah and make this kind of renewal of, of commitment to the Lord, the Philistines hear about it and say, ah! And I think in a sense Satan's heard about it. He sees the church committing himself to the Lord, maybe it's a, a, a revival, and, and, and Satan says, ah, oh, there's a place that I've got to go an attack. And and perhaps that's what we kind of see here in picture form, right? The world sees it. Satan is going to do something to try to uh, bring it all to naught. But, they're coming up against a little bit different Israel. They have a different attitude, Israel does, than they did in chapter 4. Instead of trying to coerce God, they recognize their helplessness, and they cry out to God. Did you notice that? They said, Samuel... Pray to the Lord. And this is, you know, we would say, well, why aren't you praying yourself? But this was under this covenant in the Old Testament. That was a lot of times the leaders are the one who were the mediators of a covenant in some senses. And so they rightly, I think, asked Samuel, pray to the Lord. They don't say, look, go get the ark. No, God, what do you have us do, right? They're afraid, but they don't run away. They run to the Lord. And notice that the Lord as, as in their new attitude, the Lord puts fear in the Philistines and causes them to, to be scared of the thundering, of the great noises and Israel pursues them and has an easy victory. And so in chapter 4, Israel is struck down but here the Philistines, are struck down. That, again, we're more than conquerors. Earlier, Israel said, let us save, let us bring the ark but here their prayer is, let the Lord save us. Uh, in verses 3 and 8 before the philistines heard the noise and they were afraid but one here they hear but assume they will win again but they don't win again if you just read you see the complete opposite of what's going on in these chapter 4 and chapter 7 so before there is manipulation on the part of Israel now there is repentance and so as i said the bible is consistent that these are the things that we must develop in our lives if we are going to Serve the Lord effectively. And perhaps the most blessed difference to notice in chapter 7 is in, the third, in chapter 4, there is Inkabod, the Lord's has, glory has departed. Here there is Ebenezer, a, a place of remembrance in chapter 5. Now, as I, I think I mentioned this last week, in chapter 5, Ebenezer is referred to, but here we see where the name Ebenezer, where it's actually called Ebenezer, so Uh, he's he's kind of being anachronistic in chapter 5. But we see here that they're no longer walking in religious magic, but they're walking in faith. The glory and honor of the Lord was quite hidden by the way they were acting in chapter 4, but now they're proclaiming it openly. And so, again, the church, I think, the practical aspect of this is that we do not need New programs, a fancy building, the latest techniques for there to be the Lord to work in our lives and in our numbers and all that. We just need the Lord. We need a a church to need to put the Lord first and the Lord will give the increase and the Lord will work in us. But if we are relying on techniques and and things that the Bible doesn't speak of, then we, we might get some kind of change, but it might not be the one that we need. So it was by getting right with God and putting things forward first that things turn around. And I'll just mention, too, that we don't get right with God by walking an aisle or by doing something outwardly only. It, it's what goes on between the years it, You know, you get right with God right now in your heart. You don't need to come to the church building. You don't need to go to the pastor. It's not that those things are wrong, but, you know, it's it's... Going, what's going on between your ears? And so each one of us needs to examine our relationship with the Lord and work on it. And it's done every time we open the Bible. And, and it doesn't mean a, a, a complete evaluation of our life every time we open the Bible, but when we read something, we should always have the attitude of Lord. Okay, is what's here that I need to hear? Am I being exposed? Is my sin being exposed? Remember, James says. That if it, the Bible is a mirror that exposes your sin. And if you just walk away and don't do anything about it, that's, that's dishonorings to the Lord. That's sin. You know, When I go to a mirror and I see a big smudge mark on my face, I clean it off. And if we come to church and we read our Bibles and we study our Bibles and we don't evaluate what we're reading and how this affects my life and what what, what do I need to do here, we're just being religious. But we're not being Christian, and we need to always remember that. And so Samuel teaches them that God helps him so that he might be glorified. Uh, you See this in verse twelve, uh, in him re- erecting this stone of a memorial. It, it, it's basically a, he has a testimony. He says the Lord has not just defeated our enemies at this point, but all the way up until now, the Lord has taken care of us. It. It's like I was saying before. In very next chapter, they're going to say, no, we need more. We need a man to lead us. So, evidently, the Lord being our king and just trusting him is not enough. And I think all that comes into play. But what we see here, though, that I think is good is it reminds us that It's the Lord's will for God's people to acknowledge when God does something for us and He answers our prayers. Whatever He works in our lives to bring us to the point that we are. I was actually reading the story of a a man, a a pastor, who was dating his wife in college. And he was, in his own words, had a little bit of a phobia about bad breath, so he always had gum. And so anytime they got together, he would tear a piece in half and give her half a stick and he'd chew half a stick. And, which is all well and good, whatever. And then, she though, when she got done chewing it, would stick it on a page and kept like a photo album with all these pieces of gum with a date of when she put it there. And that was her book of of remembering their times together. So, I thought, well, you know what? You know, who am I to judge that? You know, I'm, I don't like to use that phrase, but in that case, you know, whatever. It seems a little strange, but you know, if it worked for her and she was happy and he was happy, more power to him, you know, it's a little close in my mind, but you know, whatever. Uh, but it's the same idea. It meant something to her. She wanted to remember the time she was with her, the man she loved, right? That's why we have testimony meetings. That's why we have opportunity to get together and to say, look, I want everybody to know what the Lord has done for me, what the Lord means to me, right? It's not optional, and I'm trying to, to, to impress that upon you. It's not, it's, we don't do this. That's what I mean, because, well, it's a neat little idea. We can have a little body life service. I think it's, it's, I think it's commanded in scripture, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. I need to hear that the Lord is working in your life. We need to, to say, look, I, I want, because, How do we glorify God if we don't, if we don't publicly, you know, not just in church, but wherever we have opportunity, speak about the Lord? You say, well, I try to live a holy life, you know, glorify God. Well, I'm, you know, yeah, that's certainly part of it, but if you don't publicly do it, you know, we're not encouraging each other, we're not. Edifying each other in that when when we could be. When I see the Lord answering prayers in your life, when I can see you're saying, Look, the Lord has done this, and I want to praise the Lord, I'm encouraged by it. Right? So, it's something to to remember, to think about. The the Ebenezer, Here I Raise My Ebenezer, the song that we sing, that's what we do when we come together. That's why I I said, One of the reasons why, you know, Jeff was doing prayer quests last week, I said, Let's remember. To give opportunity to thank the Lord for answering prayer and not just always bringing our prayer request, bringing our prayer, to prayer And there's nothing wrong with that. But if we don't stop and acknowledge when the prayer has been answered, however it's been is that, is that a good thing? I don't know. I don't think so. Isaiah 63-7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has granted us. And the great goodness of the house of Israel that he has granted to them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not go falsely, and became their savior. All their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them in his love and his pity He redeemed them, and lifted them up, and carried them all the days of old. So, he's recounting everything that God has done for them. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. If it was good and necessary for Isaiah to do it, you know, what's changed? Why, why wouldn't we want to do that, right? And I'm not saying that I do it like I should. I'm not just putting the finger. I think some of us struggle, obviously. But uh, this is something we all need to, to want to do in our lives, I think. I think the Lord's table, which we're going to celebrate later, right? That's, that's that's an opportunity, not not for us to give our testimony as such, but we are, what, what are we doing? We're looking back at something God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And it's not that we're living in the past. You no, know, we're not recounting things God has done for us necessarily in the past like, well, you're living in the past. No. Because what has done in the past uh, affects the future. It gives meaning to the future. It, it, it has changed us and has made us different. So, um, it's, it's a necessary part of it. Worship. I mean, we want to take advantage of any opportunity we can. And again, even if we're at home with family or friends or whatever, you know, Christian brothers and sisters, to, to be talk about the Lord and just, you know, when, when there's something that He's done, and you want you know, praise Him. And it, I think it's, it'd be good for us. So you know, if you sit in church year after year and never say anything, never ask questions, never praise the Lord. Is it, is, it, is it something wrong? And, and you know, you can say, well, you know, I don't do well in public. Well, I'm sorry. the means the Lord say so. The, 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 because you struggle in an area is not an excuse to not do it. it. It means you have got a little bit more work. You've got to work at it. Some of us can talk in front of people and it's not that big a deal. But, you know, it's just, you know, God makes it all different. I understand that. Some of us you get in front of, of a group of people and you just want to crawl in a hole rather than say something, Right? you know, I know how it is. But does the honor of the Lord transcend your shyness, which is just a form of pride, let's just be honest, and say, look, I'm going to make myself Say something about the Lord to somebody and, and 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 fight the the natural tendencies that we have. You know, we always have to be very careful. Like, like if I was born with red hair or I was Irish, well, I've got a temper because well look at me, you know. And all that. No. We all got tempers, we've all got problems, right? We are to subdue those things and to be overcomers. You know, so just the things to think about. And we also want to make sure we don't fall into the trap of thinking that our relationship with God is purely a private affair. Some people say, well, I don't need, well, some people say, I don't need to go to church because I'm a Christian. I can worship on the internet or or all that nonsense. No, uh, you're, you're, because you don't have any deacons and pastors on the internet or, or, you know, however you might be doing it. You don't have any fellowship with other believers. You can't speak to other believers and be encouraged and encourage them. See, you need each other. And so, I don't think you can find any place in the Bible where our faith, our Christianity, is a private affair. It certainly is that, but it's not just a private affair. We gather together, we're in it together, and we are to encourage each other. And so, again. That brings us to the chapter 8, where Israel demands a king. Now, in order to make any sense of this, because th- we know that God is, in one sense, not pleased with this. and He makes that very clear. In another sense, he tells Samuel to go ahead and, and uh, anoint a king, which turns out to be Saul. And so to make a little bit of sense out of this chapter, we need to read Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 14, and as God recounts the laws concerning the king. And we can notice a couple things. When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, which right there tells you that there's a little motivational problem here. They're looking around, getting their cues, cues from the culture, right? Um, you may indeed set a king over you. In other words, the Lord here is saying, look, this is what's going to happen. He knows their heart, and he's not going to interfere in this particular case. They're going to ask for a king, and when that happens, it's okay. It, it, it's He makes it very clear their motivation is wrong. He's going to see that in chapter 8. But it's okay, I, I'm, I'm going to allow this. Um, whom the Lord your God will choose. That's, that's the one stipulation. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Uh, you know, in other words, there, that the, the king is still supposed to trust the Lord, and a good king doesn't become uh, that's in the place of God, so people trust the king. So don't require, uh, um, remember David caused a plague on Israel because he numbered his warriors? Uh, don't multiply horses, don't, there's a limit to your army because at the end of the day, I'm the one who gives victory, and the king isn't supposed to you know, cause that to be a problem, to come into question. But don't acquire many horses. Uh, 17. And you shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Well, first of course, Solomon's gonna do that. Yeah, it the the acquiring of many wives isn't purely a physical thing, it also was a, a political thing. You, you know, you make a treaty with somebody, you know, automatically gives you one of his daughters. and and so that's one of the things that happened with Solomon. But those are pagan women. And they're not, and they, they lead Solomon into paganism. So, you know, we see the Lord, the Lord knows the best way to live, right? You know, there it is. Um, he shall not excessive silver or gold. Because to do that means you're taxing your people. The king is, leaders are to be, a good leadership creates a economy that everybody is helped. Not The government is not to amass forces for itself because the people suffer, right? And there, here's an example of that, especially with a despot or a king who has total authority. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. So if he spends some of his time every day writing uh, from the law of God, that's going to make him a better king. So the Lord allows it, but look, under these guidelines, it can be a good thing for the people. And it, of course, we know that didn't take place for the most part because it was a Josiah who, while he was the child king, they found the law of God, probably the Pentateuch, or at least Deuteronomy, and it, they didn't have it. So it had been lost for years, so you know no one was copying it, because it, it was a found at some point. So it shall be with him, verse 19, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and his statutes and doing them. Not just reading about these things, obeying them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children. Such a simple recipe for blessings, a long kingship, a fruitful nation. All you got to do is honor me with all your heart, right? Same thing. And oh, with the exception of a handful of exceptions, the kings just miserably failed, and all the trouble, economically, politically, spiritually. Come upon the people because it just won't do what, what, uh, you know, six verses, seven verses talk about. So, anyway, but that, that explains why Samuel can give them, you know, a king, anointed king, uh, and even though technically their motivations for asking are not correct. And, and so, chapter 8 sees this as ultimate rejection of God's authority. Uh, and really, so it's not wrong to request a king, but the motivation behind it was wrong. They wanted to look like other nations. They did not trust the Lord well enough to think that, you know, it's, as we said, chapter 7, things couldn't be better. Why do you need a king? Because other nations have it. And so that's the beginning of this particular problem. So Samuel rehearses all the times. And what is, you know, this is interesting. As you read through chapter 8, we don't have time to do that. Samuel says, okay, we'll do this, but let me remind you about something. And he starts back, I think, with with the Exodus and recounts all the ways God has taken care of them without a king. And yet, okay, we we need a king. And so, again, you you see, I think, what's going on here. And rightly so, because over in Psalm 19, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in a man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Kings, and and Samuel says this too, kings will tax you. They're going to, you're going to have less money. They're going to be taking your uh, kids either for the army or for uh, their servants. Uh, They're going to make them their servant. There's going to be all these problems that come that you really don't. That if, if I'm your king and, and things continue the way they are, you won't have to worry about. You have more money, won't be having the kids drafted into the army and all that. Not that they didn't have war armies that, it, but it's just going to make things worse, not better. But you know. So the king uh, and the reason we have, I think, well. We're not going to have time to finish this anyway. Turn over to Psalm 146. It's a short chapter, or Psalm, but it says something, it's another sister passage to this. Uh, psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So, I mean, right there, you, you, at the end of the day, it doesn't mean that God doesn't give us leaders, doesn't give us you know, wife, husband, or people that protect us, police, whatever. But at the end of the day, God is our refuge. God is our strength. He's the one who takes care of us, and not the police. In that sense, therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved to the heart of the sea, though it is waters roar and foam, uh, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. And uh, and all God's got to say is nope. And that's the end of whatever's going on. The Lord of hosts is with us. The Lord of hosts is a name that we see now and then. Say, what's its significance? Does anybody know what the, that name primarily? The significance of heaven, the Lord of heaven. Lord of the Army, right? So, what is that? What's the point? Yeah, he gives protection. He's in control. Strength. In other words, he's a God we know who has an innumerable, innumerable amount of angels. Not that he needs angels, but it's a sign of his strength. He has a great army. He's powerful. And so the God of Host is referring to his strength in that sense. Um, and the God of Jacob is our fortress. So you see just another way of saying that. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire if he does that, why do you need a physical king to do that? A man. Right? Be still and know that I am God. And be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So you can see why God at the end of the day, Yahweh says I'm going to give you a king because ultimately you know, the king was going to be a type of And of course, uh, the king, Christ was going to be born of the kingly line because he was going to receive a kingdom. So, there's reasons why the Lord is going to always allow them that there be a king. But the people ask for a king not because they're wanting to fulfill prophecy or because they're looking forward to the Messiah being their king. No, they don't trust God enough. So, that's just some interesting verses. And a king will easily become the substitute for our prayers and our worship. You say, "Well, we don't have a king." Well, for us, a king is anyone who is stronger than us, or who have resources that we don't have, whether it be financially, or they're smarter than us, or whatever. And we look to them for help rather than the Lord. Not along with the Lord. Not in the Lord. I'm, I, I, I'm going to ask this bank for help, but I know at the end of the day. Even if I get it from them or don't, you're gonna take care of me. right? you know, I'm trusting in God, but I'm using the means, but they're, they're bypassing that. They're looking just to the means. So the people did not ask for a king to be a spiritual leader. They wanted a king to look like other nations. It's just an interesting thing to think about. So it wasn't to stay close to God. It wasn't saying, well Lord, we need a king because we need someone to really help us, uh, enforce the covenant, to remember the covenant. We need a king to tear down all the high places, which are already, you know, in Israel. To so get rid of the Baals of the Asher. All this, this sexual, uh, uh, worship of these pagan gods. We need a king to keep us straight, to help us in that area. <laughs> Not a king for that reason. And that's why from now on, uh as the king is, so the people go. The king is one who tries to obey the Lord, well people won't submit to that. The king <coughs> doesn't care anything about Yahweh, people are happy to go that way too. So it just shows us a lot of problems with the old covenant and just that if you don't have a changed heart and God, if you have a sanctified God in your heart, it really doesn't matter. And it's our tendency to evaluate our problems like in just like everyone around us. All the other nations have a king, so we must need a king. And uh, We become so much like the world sometimes. So instead of trusting God, they are <laughs> Dictating what form God must take, how we will interact with God, how He will take care of us. Sometimes God will let us have our way, as He does here. But it's it's when we when we want our way and it's really not in the course of God's word, it's not going to work out like it could like it should and that's why he says a king will bring them under additional bondage, less money less freedom and so forth so it seems to be an aversion to living in such a way that makes us different from those around us so as I kind of just think about it in our day they for whatever reason didn't want to look different right and that's how we are right it's something we struggle with we don't want to look different but by definition, Israel under the Old Covenant and us under the New Covenant are different because we're completely different people. We're different from the world, inwardly and to some degree outwardly. Uh, we live by, a, we have a different team, we have a different set of rules, we have different natures. So there better be some obvious differences. So when we say, well, we want to look like the world around us, there is something miserably wrong with the way we think when we do that, and we've all done it. We're, we're we we, we haven't really worried about what does the Bible say about my appearance, my dress, how I'm living. We look at the modern the trends. Probably the worst of all worst, we look at Hollywood, and we want to dress like Hollywood. Yeah, I know it's easy to do, right? And in Leviticus 19:2, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I am uh, in the Lord, your God, and am uh, holy. Be holy, Peter said, Be holy, for I am holy, the Lord said. That's where he said it. And he's not saying there, be different because I'm different. We know that holiness means separation. God is separate from his creation. We are to be separate in the in that sense of holiness. We are to be devoted unto the Lord and not to the flesh. But he's not just saying be different because, you know, be different. I was kind of, being raised in fundamentalism, that, I, that, I literally was raised like that and I'll stop with this I remember a pastor that I had for several years who said when I was a teenager when the world goes this way the church generally goes with it which is true (laughs) We compromise sometimes. He says, "But what we should be doing when the world goes this way, we should be going this way." Well, wait just a minute. If we're oh, if we're right here, if we're serving the Lord, doing the right thing, why do we have to go the opposite way? Why do we got to make ourselves look different and be odd for no reason? Right? Well, I think what we should be doing is staying staying true to the Lord, not not going the opposite way. So, to me, that was a kind of a typical fundamentalist kind of way to think. You've got to be careful there. Um but someone said, rightly so, that the first lessons that we have to learn is a, to have a wholesome disregard for other people's ways. We need to love Christ supremely, and we'll stand out from the crowd if we just love Christ. We'll be different. But, uh, if we run out of time, so I'll stop there and pick this up. Any mm-hmm. questions or comments? So we thank you for your love to us this day, and for the Word of God, and pray that you might help us to you grow in understanding of it and to be transformed by it. And may we love you as we are, Lord. Work in our hearts and lives. For we know it starts with hearts that are separate unto the Lord. Let remember that we are sinners saved by grace. We yes, ask this things in Jesus' name. Amen.